Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. My sisters are Patty and Jackie, and Patty, when she would get mad at us, she'd stomp her foot and put her hands on her hips and say, well, you guys are adopted, I'm real. (laughs) And Jackie and I would look at her and say, well, we're adopted, mom wanted us, she had to have you. (laughs) I mean, we really, we were happy. We didn't care that we were adopted. As I got older, I remember the little bits of me wanting to know and yet feeling guilty about it. Like, that would be disloyal. I started thinking about wanting to search when I was in my 20s. That desire did not become strong until I was pregnant with my first child, but I didn't do it. I had a desire to find my birth mother, not because I wanted a relationship with her or wanted to know her. For me, it was because I wanted to know more about myself. I felt different from my family when I was young, mostly in the way I looked. I remember my mom's hands. I always wished that my hands looked like hers, and mine didn't. And so that was something else that bothered me for a long time, that I want to know. Where did I come from? Who do I look like? I want to know, (laughs) why do I cry so easy? (laughs) The things that make me who I am, why? And where do they come from? Those are things that motivated me to search. And I finally got up the courage when I was 52 years old. When I started my search, I sat down one Friday night at the computer and I thought, huh, I wonder if I plugged in her name to Ancestry.com if I would find anything. Because anytime I had Googled her name, it was just too overwhelming, too many Deanna Olsons. I literally found her in less than 10 minutes. I found Deanna M. Olson's obituary. She had died in 2009, and the description of her life kind of fit like a puzzle. I was fairly sure I'd found the right person, but there was not a way to know for sure. I felt like unless I wrote for my non-identifying information. When I received the letter back, every single thing that letter included was a match to what I had been told when I was being raised to what was in her obituary. The obituary stated that she was Lutheran and was from Wisconsin. The non-identifying information, she was Lutheran, she was from Wisconsin. She moved to California to the same area where I was born eight months before I was born. She was Norwegian. She had a beautiful soprano singing voice and it went down the line and every single thing on it matched. And I just cried and cried and cried. That's the moment I knew I found her. Today's a day that I'm packing my clothes, getting ready for a trip to go to Wisconsin and meet my birth family. It didn't sink in right away, but eventually it clicked that her obituary listed all of her surviving relatives. My mother was the second oldest of 
six sisters, and only the two youngest are surviving. Their names are Nancy and Kim. Ultimately, I decided to write to both of them. I ended up talking to Nancy the following Tuesday. I answered the phone, hello, and she said, hello, is this Rhonda? And I said, yes, it is. And she said, Rhonda, this is your Aunt Nancy. <laughs> We're in the car. We're on our way to Blanchardville, and I'm going to meet my birth aunt. I was thinking a little bit ago how, what, six months ago, I didn't know any of this. It kind of feels like a dream. told me that she and Kim didn't know anything about me. She said, that was a complete surprise. She said, but the minute I read your letter and I saw her signature and looked at your pictures, she said, I knew this is Deanna's daughter. I have another niece. When you see your mother's hands coming through your coat sleeves, you know you're getting older, and that's what my mom's hands are Really? Like. Oh Gosh. my goodness. Now I gotta take a picture of it. Can yeah. I take a picture of your hand with my hand? <laughs> What are you guys laughing at us for? <laughs> You're fitting right in. <laughs> she told me that she immediately called Orlin. Orlin and his wife, Pat, lived in California when my mother moved to California when she was pregnant with me. She called him and he said, yes, that is true. Deanna had a daughter. Is this Orlin? Yep. Yeah. Hi, Orlin. <laughs> Hi, Orlin. Hi, Nancy told me that Orlin was the only living person who knew about me. And she said, Orlin is happy to talk to you and tell you whatever you need to know. There you are. Here I am. And he was the most gracious, kind man. I Just a wonderful, wonderful person. I could not have asked for a better experience. It's an odd thing to explain. I think another adopted person could understand it, probably better than someone who's not. But um, there's that need. A need to fit in and be a part. And I have that now in two families. Today, on this first Sabbath of Advent, we receive a gift, Tamar's gift. The fabric of Tamar's life was woven with suffering, secrets, and shame. Her unrighteous husband died, leaving her at the mercy of a crass father-in-law. Passed around from one brother-in-law to the next, Tamar's despair seeps through the pages of her story. In that society, her desire, her need for a child was all-consuming. In one last act of desperation, she makes an extreme choice, a choice which plants the seed of shame in her life and in that of her family. Nine months later, Tamar, the widow, becomes Tamar, the single mother.
The biblical record reads, When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Paris. Then his brother, who had a scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was given the name Zera. What will be the ongoing record of this family? What will 23 and Jesus, for that matter, and me, offer us? Does the incarnation of Jesus offer a way to move from shame to redemption? What is it, Mommy? I think it's a signet seal. Thank you very much. Such simple objects. A staff, a shepherd's staff, and a signet seal. A signet seal was used in the ancient world to imprint legal documents. Such simple things. And yet they contain within them profound meaning and a painful story. So hear the story. It was not a good time in Judah's life. Judah had reasons to struggle. He had a secret that he was bearing, a deep, sordid secret that could not be told. It's enough to make me wonder if on those quiet Palestinian nights, if the voice screaming in his head was loud enough to be heard by his father sleeping nearby. It was a terrible memory, a dastardly secret. And yet he was implicated and could not speak of it. It hadn't been that long before that Judah's voice had been the one to make the suggestion. Younger brother Joseph, the favored one, had come to see the brothers. Their pent-up anger and jealousy and envy focused itself on Joseph to the degree that they were ready right then to shed his blood and end his life. It had been Judah who had spoken up. No, don't kill him. Don't kill him. He had that to his credit. But it had also been Judah who had made the suggestion that they soon followed. Instead of killing him, he said, let's sell him. Sell him to these Midianite traders that we see coming in the distance. And so that's precisely what they did. They sold him to the Midianite traders who then would take Joseph to Egypt and sell him into Egyptian slavery. And then the brothers would take that robe, that coat of many colors, would rip it in shreds, would dip it in the blood of a sacrificed goat, and then would take it to their father and would say, see for yourself. He's gone. 
the news nearly killed their father. And thus began the years of secrecy. Secrets are painful. Secrets breed shame. That family had within it many seeds of shame that would bear painful fruit in their life. Judah principle among them. It was not a good time in his life. But that wasn't all. There was more to add to his suffering. He had three sons. The first one married a woman. She was from across the pasture, if you get my drift. Married a woman named Tamar. Now, the story that went around about what happened next is not clear in its details or specifics. What is clear is he was evil, and so the story that went around was the Lord killed him. It was then that things got more complicated for Judah and his family because it was then that the Leverite marriage law kicked into effect. The Leverite marriage law said that if a man died leaving his wife childless, his next brother was to impregnate the widow, thereby carrying on the family line and offering a way for her to provide for herself as she aged. It was important for both lineage purposes, but also especially for protection and care of a woman who was alone in that society. Brother number two wanted nothing to do with it. If I have a child, I want that child to follow in my name. I want that child to carry my heritage. I want nothing to do with this. Almost. So he didn't fully complete the task. Well, the story that went around after his untimely death was that he was evil, so God killed him too. So now Judah has two dead sons. He has three, two are gone. So to add to the secrecy, which adds to the shame, he now adds the grief of two dead sons. And along the way, to the funeral, as it were, his wife dies. So one punch is coming right after the other in the life of Judah. Things are not going well. He has a secret that is seething in his soul. As he watches his father age before his eyes, with grief bringing him closer and closer to death, he watches his father grieve a son that Judah knows, at least at last count, was alive, but he can't say. And he has a third son. Now, you can imagine. You can imagine two sons, both dead, untimely deaths, connected to the same woman named Tamar. He is not at all eager for his third son to get involved. And so he says to Tamar, go back to your father's house. Just stay there. Live there until my youngest is older. I'll call for you. He has no intention of doing such. But she has no choice. And so off she goes. And time passes. He has a secret. 
Secrets cause shame. The shame builds. And there's a deadly mixture of shame and grief in his soul when he takes that business trip. He's off to oversee his flocks and herds on a sheep-shearing expedition. And it is there on that trip that he sees her. She's off by the side of the road. He immediately recognizes what kind of woman she must be. She stands there with those clothes that would have marked her as a shrine prostitute, a ritual prostitute, part of the pagan religion of the day suggested, in fact, more than suggested, believed that the way to incite the gods to fertility of your flocks and your herds and your fields, the way to incite the gods to, to fertility was to join with a ritual prostitute sexually. And that would give your flocks and herds and lands fertility. Judah is not part of that faith. He does what he does not for religious reasons. He just sees her on the side of the road and says, pull over, pull over right here. He says to her, how much? She says, what are you offering? I'll give you a goat from my herd. I don't see any herd here. I don't see any goat here. I'll send you a goat. <laughs> I've heard that before. Sorry, buddy. Won't work with me. Then what can I do? The emotions roil within him. That mixture of desire and secrecy and shame and grief. What can I give you? What about that staff that you hold in your hands? Well, this is inscribed with the names of my forefathers. I know. Give me your staff. Anything. And what's that hanging around your neck? <laughs> That's my signet seal. It is with this that I seal official documents. Give it to me. But that's my seal. No pay, no play. Here. And the deal is struck. Not long later, Judah sends a friend. He doesn't go himself, he sends a friend. Take this goat. You've got to get my stuff. That's my identity. And so the friend goes. And he asks, um, <clears throat> have, have, have you all seen the, um, the, um, the woman? Sir, we don't have that kind of woman in this neighborhood. Judah, I couldn't find her. Then let's get out of town. Let's get out before we're found out and we become a laughingstock. And so Judah and his entourage 
leave town. Headed back to a secret, now carrying an additional secret with him. Secrets breed shame. Shame, when exposed, can breed rage. Secrets have a way of becoming known. And thus it is in the life of Judah. It's a few months later. A messenger comes and says to him, Judah, your daughter-in-law Tamar, she's pregnant. What? How did that happen? <laughs> I assumed you knew. I'm not asking that. I'm just asking, how did it happen? Who is the father? Ah. Well, it seems she was angry. You didn't follow the law that is intended to protect her. So she took things into her own hands, veiled herself like a shrine prostitute, and cut a deal. And now, as they will one day say, their love had started growing on its own. Secrets breed shame. Shame, when exposed, can breed rage. So I assume that the words next spoken by Judah were shouted words. Bring her here. Bring her here. We are going to burn her alive. Now, the law provided punishment at the time. In fact, it provided for capital punishment at the time, but capital punishment for both. Only in the most extreme and severe of cases was fire ever involved, as would have been the case with the nations around them. It's not a good time in Judah's life. And so they bring her. The story that is told in Genesis 37 and Genesis 38 paints a scene of increasing tension. The moment has arrived. The funeral pyre is ready to be lit. All that's missing is Tamar. Bring her out. And she comes, not fighting. And then she says, I want to speak. I have some last words. Say on. Father Judah, I have done that of which I have been accused. I admit it. I own it. Yes, it happened. But I want everyone gathered here to know just a couple of things. First, I would like those gathered here to know that I did what I did, but I did it for a reason. 
I did it because you, Father Judah, did not follow the law, a law intended to protect me, a law intended to carry on the lineage of my husband. You know the law, and you didn't follow it. I admit, I took things into my own hands, but only seeking the cause of justice. Judah is silent. But there's a second thing I would like all to know. I would like everyone to know the name of the man who is the father of my child. She reaches for something. And then she holds it up. First, a staff inscribed with names, and then a signet seal. These, she says, belong to the man who is the father of my child. It must have taken a moment to register. But when it did, there was no question in Judah's mind. It caused him to speak the words that must surely be the understatement of Scripture. In faltering tones, cracking voice, he says, she is more righteous than I. Secrets breed shame. Judah and his family are not the only ones with secrets. In that day or ours, two young women, Laura Barnett, Sandra Spannon, tried an experiment downtown Manhattan. They secured the large picture window space of a store there. They dressed up as 19th century washerwomen. One went to work painting, while the other wrote on the window and invited participation. Air your dirty laundry, they said. Free yourself of your shame and your secrets. Passersby were invited to write on paper that deep, dark, hidden secret that haunted their nights. And once they had moved on, then they would be posted in the window. I want to read you a few of the statements that appeared in the window in their experiment. One person wrote, The hermit crab was still alive when I threw it down the trash chute. A second, I want to see SUVs explode. Those people are so selfish. A third, this was the year 2006, my girlfriend and I both think Osama bin Laden has a sweet-looking face. Another, I make fun of this one friend behind her back all the time. She just enrages me, but I get freaked out when I think what she might say about me. I worry, does this mean we're not really friends? Human relationships can be intimately confusing. Another, I haven't slept with my husband in a year, and I'm about to start an affair with blank. 
Yet another, I haven't yet visited my dead parents' grave. Another, I'm dating a married man and getting financial compensation in exchange for the guilt. I'm 25 and he's a millionaire. It pays to be young. And one more, New York makes me feel lonely. Laura Barnett, in talking to the New York Times reporter, said the following, We go there, she and Sandra, we go there and the window is empty and we're wearing all white. And at the end, the window is full, and we're covered with paint. It's exhausting. Some of those things are really, really sad. And afterwards, I need to take a bath just to wash off the shame. It may be worthwhile to draw a distinction between guilt and shame. Guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. Guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, I am someone bad. Guilt says, I, I took an action, made a decision that needs to be corrected. Shame says, I may have done that, but now I'm going to hide that action. I'm going to hide that decision so that no one ever knows. It's not a good time in Judah's life. And then we come to Advent, to the Advent season. And we discover that Judah's story intersects with our story. Maybe not in as extreme a fashion, or maybe so. After all, we live in a 23andMe world. 23andMe, a privately held company, Mountain View, California, makes the claim, just take a swab, a swab of saliva from your mouth. Send it in. We will examine your ancestry. We will send to you the results. You will know more about where you came from than you've ever known. And because of that, you'll be able to know about more about your future than you could ever know, especially in regards to health. But many are drawn in because they want to know, who am I? What is my identity? From whom did I originally come? Now, whatever you may think about their claims, there are some controversies about it. That's our focus this Advent series. Only our focus is 23 and Jesus and me. The reason we do so is simply this. It's one line that we'll repeat time and again through this series. It's this affirmation. It's this belief. Jesus' pedigree can change your destiny. Jesus' pedigree can change your destiny. For that, we go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, a chapter that is just filled mostly in the beginning with a long list of names. His ancestry. When we come to the reading of this chapter, what we tend to think is that here we are reading about Jesus' past when a very real part of it is that here we are reading about your future. Because here we can find what it is that God does with people and families like Judas. What does God do with secrets and with shame.
So let's read. Matthew 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. You can picture the storyteller telling the young Jewish Jewish kids and teenagers, this is who you are. They listen intently, wanting to learn the names. These they know. These are the stellar names, the heroes of their people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That's me. That's part of who I am. Their little chests swell with pride. I have a bit of an understanding of what that might be like. From standing as a youngster, maybe an early to mid-teenager, standing in that emblem of Texas history called the Alamo, the story that is told, at least in Texas, that's a point where we see heroism and sacrifice, those willing to stand for their people. And I stood there in that quiet space that day and looked at the names on the wall. Those heroes who had died there, dozens of names. And I read the names down the list until I came to one, Thomas H. Roberts. Roberts. I didn't know then, I don't know now, with any certainty. But my chest did swell just a bit. I felt like saying, maybe this is part of me. That's what they would have felt with certainty. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez and Zerah. Oh, aren't those the twins? First one hand came out, scarlet thread pulled back in. The other came. Wasn't that the... Yes, those are the ones. Whose mother... What do you mean mother? Even as a youngster, they knew that mothers, women, don't make the lists, not the genealogies. Mother. Well, when they hear the word mother, then we know at least that there are some stellar mothers. They must make the list. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, surely they make the list. Whose mother was Tamar. What is Matthew doing? I read to you the words of New Testament scholar Robert Mounts, who writes this, A key irregularity sets this family record apart from all others. It makes reference to five women. 
Since women had no legal rights in Jesus' day, this is indeed extraordinary. And note who the four, apart from Mary, were. Tamar was a Canaanite who seduced her father-in-law, Judah. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. Ruth was a Moabitess. Deuteronomy 23 rules that no Moabite or any of his descendants may ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, was the wife of a Hittite, and as a result of his lust for her, David committed both adultery and murder. If one searched the Old Testament for a more unlikely group of candidates for a messianic lineage, it is doubtful one could come up with a more questionable group. Why did Matthew include women in his genealogical listing? They're not in the lineage in the same sense that all the men are. Since their names did not have to be included, Matthew must have had some specific reason for doing so. Of the many solutions offered, the most persuasive is that by including the women, Matthew is calling attention to the strange ways in which God has brought about his purpose in times past and is thereby preparing the way for a truly unique event, the virgin birth of Jesus. Whether or not he is getting ready to argue that God's activity embraces both Jew and Gentile, all four women were foreigners, is not quite clear. In any case, the family record reminds us of the fallen state of human nature and the redeeming activity of God in bringing back to himself the sinner as well as the saint. God embraces all. God draws into his divine and providential purposes any who is in any way willing. That includes Judah with his secrets and his shame. After all, consider the fact that the object of Judah's first secret would later say of what happened to him, you intended it for evil, God used it for good. That's what he's saying. Even Judah gets drawn into the purposes of God. And what about Tamar? That woman who had every right to ask what she wanted and ask what she then performed. It was justice. God drew her in. She became a part of the purposes of God. You know, in some ways, it makes me wish that Judah and Tamar had lived to hear the reading of Matthew's gospel, the first chapter, so that they might know that they would play a part in the work of God in the world. What does God do with fractured families, with flawed people, those bearing secrets that create great shame. Here's the paradox of shame. Shame fears exposure. And yet, shame is healed by disclosure. Shame fears being known and rejected. And yet shame is healed by being known and accepted. And that's what God does with Judah and Tamar.
That's what God will do for you. He will draw you in. Knowing fully your story. Do you know what can happen when God does that in your life? I'll tell you what can happen. We saw it on the screen. As a daughter never know, embraced aunts who never knew, and wept tears of gladness and reconciliation. That's Matthew 1. That's Judah and Tamar. That, my friends, is the message of Christmas. That is the music of Advent. <laughs>